Hey everybody, Josh Sheridan here with the Barely Legal Podcast. On today's show, we have Evan Fryman, who is running for Group 28 Circuit Court Bench for Pinellas and Pasco County. Uh, He's been nice enough to come by amidst the pandemic and talk with me about his campaign, his experience uh, as a member of the bar here in Florida, uh, kind of how he's gotten through this weird time that we're in as an attorney, both in the private sector and with the public defender's office. And uh, hopefully we'll get into some other stuff. So thank you for coming by the show today. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Good, 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 good. So uh, we talked a little bit before you came on. And as I understand it, you are you a South Florida native or where are you from originally? No, I'm from New York originally. Whereabouts? Um, Northern Westchester County is about an hour north of New York City. Okay, okay. Um, I like to say I was a native Floridian because my mom was pregnant with me when she came down here and visited the Everglades when she was eight months pregnant. But that's about as close as I can get. So you're a hybrid. You're yeah. a hybrid. Too. Well, that's good. My, my dad was from Albany, New York, and my mom from Miami. So okay. I kind of come from the same stock. Um, how old were you when you moved from New York? Uh, I lived there my whole childhood, went away to college, and then met my wife while I was in college and moved to Miami for grad school. Where did you go to undergrad? Uh, Dartmouth College. Oh, wow. Pretty impressive. And you met your, your wife was a student there as well? She was at Smith College, actually. We met through a um, mutual friend who she knew, actually, from the Tampa Bay area. So Now, do you come from a big family, only child? How many? I have one older sister. She lives outside of uh, Boston, and that's it. Okay. Now, are you the first attorney in the family, or were there other? No, actually, my mom went back to school. She actually went back to law school when I was about six. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So mm-hmm. you were even kind of aware of what was going on. Do you remember? I remember her graduation day. Do you remember that's her studying or being absent or being stressed or any of those? No, I mean, I do remember her going back to school. I remember a lot of big books around the house, um, but mostly I remember the graduation day because I remember vividly a man walking into a plate glass you know, wall as he was, you know, that was too clean. Oh, wow. Um, and it's so just a vivid memory of that. And then I remember there was a tree that I wanted to climb. Oh, wow. Well, there you go. That's how, that's kind of how I do things, too. I attach these little random pieces to memories. And uh, yeah. Anyway, so what type of attorney was she? Actually, she never actively practiced. She was in uh, legal publishing. She worked for Matthew Bender, which is now oh, I think, sure. part of, uh, I mean, ultimately part of Walter's Clores, which is, I guess, either Lexus or Westlaw. I'm not sure which one. Uh, for many years. Was she like an editor or a writer? Mm-hmm. Or? Yeah, legal editor. Um, she did a lot of tax law work and uh, worked with a bunch of different authors. Ultimately, um, also worked for like, she was like the executive editor, I think, for the AICPA magazine at some point in time. Oh, wow. Worked for uh, the New York Botanical Gardens at a certain point. So she was always a, an editor. Was um, she like law review and that sort of thing in law school? No, I don't think she made law review. Really? Um, not that I recall. Okay. So I guess I have that on her. And what did your, <laughs> your dad do? My dad was a CPA. Uh, he was the oh, controller wow. of the town uh, that I grew up in. Uh, he was always, you know, sports coach. So he was the guy who was, who was you know, always around. While we were, were they up. an academic family? When you, Did you feel like it was an academic household or kind of did they leave that at work and more a little bit? Well, I mean, academic standards were certainly high. You know, my dad was the kind of one who you came home with a 98 on a test and was where my other two points, that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, what happened here? <laughs> right. Um, but uh, but in a supportive way. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, growing up in the area of New York that I grew up in, public school was about as, as good as good any as private gets, school sure, you, could, yeah. you could find down here. So, you know, I had, I mean, there were probably between a half a dozen and a dozen kids in my graduating class who went off to the Ivy League and, you know, and comparable schools. So that was sort of the bar that you had set for you. Did you play sports growing up? I did. What um, were your sports? Uh, in high school, I played soccer, 
and swam growing up. I also played basketball. I was going to say, you look like a, you know, yeah, I can see on the courts. Yeah. Now, okay. triathlons. Oh, you do all that stuff? Yeah. Well, yeah. that's good. My that's wife good. and I are training for Ironman Florida in November. Well, what was it? Was it the, the New York or Boston? What was the one they just said is going to be virtual for the first time? They're not going to hold for the first time in its history. They canceled the Boston Marathon. Yeah, like yeah. 140-something years or 20-something years. Yeah. I can't remember. That's yeah. crazy. It's, it's a big deal. Yeah. Wow. So uh, are you being able to maintain your training and your fitness during all of this? Yeah, for us, we've been lucky. I mean, we get up real early, um, pretty much do our running um, outside on the beach uh, before the sun rises a lot of the time. Bikes are all indoors except for long rides. We'll go out on the, you know, on the trail uh, for long rides. And then swimming is the gulf. So, you know, we, we weren't effective when the pool shut down. Right, yeah. So gym shutting down really didn't hurt you. God, it's crazy. I went to... Uh, target not too long ago and the bike aisle is just completely gone and i was actually in the market to get a bike i had one that i had bought probably uh prematurely didn't love riding it so i decided to get another one and the, the two things that i've been wanting to get since march has been a, a portable monitor for my laptop and a bike and those two things are non-existent in yeah. this current market because yeah. with everybody working from home they want to get as many monitors as they can so that they can do the work. And because the gyms are closed, they want to go ride a bike or do something else, and those things are both gone. So it's been amazing. And Oh, yeah. I remember when they, the, the store the shelves cleared out of, uh, of free weights. Oh, yeah. Know, just little book dumbbells and stuff. Yeah. It's, I'm, I'm, I still think we haven't even begun to determine how this has impacted us. I think that you know, with 10 years, 20 years perspective, hopefully right. that this is not something that's happening every year. There's going to be, you know, some economic lessons, some social lessons. I mean, between just kind of what's going on, you know, in Minneapolis right now and how that's being handled. And then, you know, economically, what businesses are open, closed, how people are socializing, how people are exercising and, and, and more kind of germane to the discussion here is how court's going to go. Like, I'm wondering if there's going to be a big move towards more remote hearings and kind of trying to diminish the traffic at the courthouse. It certainly seems to be the push. Um, I know, you know, we're hearing some. It's funny because some judges and uh, attorneys are, you know, struggling with the idea of doing virtual trials um, because they're concerned trials about depositions, credibility, great. Yeah. you know, determinations. How do you do that, you know, on a video screen? I've actually heard the flip side, which is you catch people when they're Zooming from home and their background is their comfort zone. They let their guard down. You know, they don't have their lawyer right next to them kicking them on the, you know, under the table when they're, you know, doing something wrong. Um, so in some ways, you can judge candor even better yeah. in, a, in a virtual setting. For a little bit, their defenses are right. let down. But, you know, but I, it's the jury system that's the biggest difficulty. I mean, just the logistics of, you know, how, of how do you select a jury um, virtually? How do you then actually impanel them, you know, and, and have them hear the case, you know, making sure that they're all paying attention from the privacy of their home or whatever, you know, setup you create. And that's I, I just I don't see that as as viable long term, at least not with the current technology. Yeah, I don't I don't I, I agree with you. I don't think that you can completely do away with in person, uh, you know, parts of the criminal justice system. I mean, obviously, like you said, picking a jury, having a jury trial maybe motion practice that requires, you know, testimonial, uh, evidentiary, you know, it's very hard to show a witness in an exhibit and cross-examine them on it. Yeah. 
you know, when, wait a second, wait, which button do I hit? Which, which, the, do you see it now? Do you not see it? I mean, it just slams the brakes on the whole process. But status checks, pretrial conferences, arraignments, these sorts of things, I think, very easily can be done that way. And I've actually really enjoyed, you know, primarily I do family law. The Zoom mediations have been a godsend for me. I love because one thing is there's a lot of downtime in a mediation. And if I'm at my desk, I'm knocking out work big time while I'm there. I have all of my, uh, you know, my materials right there at the fingertips. I don't have to bring some big ring binder or or, travel case with me to mediation. I got it all right there on the network. Oh, yeah, it's terrific. I've loved that. We've had some difficult with the depositions depending on what it is i mean it depends on if it's just a quickie you know were you there did you see this person that's one thing but if you're having to depose a husband on his financials and all this other stuff i mean that's just yeah you got the same issues with with the logistics of documents and, and reviewing them i um i experienced my first zoom meeting with breakout sessions yeah which i assume they use during the mediation yeah. process and I thought it was terrific, yeah. Uh, because and this was for a discussion format, uh, you know, just a, a community program uh, where we started with a big group and then they broke us out to have you know sort of more intimate discussions about an issue, and it was just it was phenomenal. Yeah. So I mean, the technology is there for us to do a whole lot of stuff with it, but I agree. I mean, the routine stuff we don't need to be going to court and having the the, the, the courtroom filled with seventy five defendants and you know and a bunch of lawyers. That's just it's Ridiculous. unnecessary. And it's- I mean, from the private side. Think about a, what a what a what a benefit that is to you. How much you. easier I could appear in Polk, Pasco, well, Hillsboro. You get Pinellas, all that time all at the back. Same time. Yeah. Costs your clients less money. You know, costs you less heartache. It's got to be a win-win for a lot of people. I, I don't disagree. One, one funny, just as a kind of a side note thing that keeps happening is with the mediations. You know that uh, only the parties and their attorneys and the mediator can be there. Otherwise, if there's a third party, there's a confidentiality issue. Right. Well, one of the things that has happened a lot is. You're talking to your client on Zoom, and you can hear a voice in the background, and you can kind of see their eyes kind of look off the left. And I'm like, I've told you that you have to be alone right now. So if mom is on the other side of the laptop coaching you on what you should be asking for as far as alimony, we've got a problem here. And that comes up quite a lot. So You I don't know, know, but we've had that problem as mediator. I'm, I'm, I'm a certified uh, family court and circuit okay. civil mediator as okay. well. Um and we've had that problem with telephonic mediations for years. Yeah, so yeah. it's it's just a it's new a new you know twist on that exactly. same old problem. Exactly. So uh, Dartmouth, what was your undergrad degree in? Philosophy modified Ooh. with education, uh, which is a long way of saying I wanted to be an ed major, but we didn't have one. Right. But it was a fantastic department. Uh, I was basically very close to deciding to get my teacher certification and doing a fifth year because uh, you would have done student teaching up in Hanover and gotten your certification. Uh, but I met my wife my junior year, and more importantly, I met my father-in-law, and his advice to me was, you can always go back to teaching, finish your education to whatever the nth degree is that you plan to achieve, and then you can go back and apply that and teach. Right. And I took that advice, and I, I think he was right in the long run, uh, and I've, I actually have started teaching, not to the extent that I probably thought I would back then, uh, but I teach a labor and employment law course at St. Pete College over the summers uh, oh, wow. for their paralegal studies program. I have done that twice uh, last summer and two summers or three summers ago. How did the philosophy speak? Was that did you have an interest in that, or was that just kind of what what the, the dart th- landed on? Or I th- originally started as a pre med, okay. uh, which is funny because my wife started as pre law and we switched along the yeah. way. But uh, as I got more into the upper level math and upper level science classes, I wasn't as interested. And uh, 
I think at some point in time I switched and decided I wanted to go to law school instead of med school. And the philosophy was just more about you know how to structure thought and argument. And right. It, was, it, it, it just lended itself Logic really well. and rhetoric and all these types of things. Exactly. My dad was in the seminary to become a priest up in uh, Conception, Missouri, and they had a very intensive philosophy program. So my household, I always joke while most kids were listening to their father talk about you know, whoever the quarterback was for this team or whatever, my dad was talking to me about Camus and, you know, Kierkegaard and Wittgenstein and all these other people. So sure. that's kind of was my upbringing. But um, so philosophy's always kind of been near and dear to my heart. But uh, so, well, it's funny you mentioned labor and employment law. That, again, not to beat a dead horse, but how that's going to work in this, in this day and age of all these people being let go, the circumstances under which they're being let go, this PPE. I mean, I don't know how much that would, would, would have a crossover, but one of the big things that us as small business owners are having is we all got this PPE, or those of us that were lucky enough to get the payroll protection loan, they keep changing what the mandate is on how you're to use it, how it's to be paid back, and now it's like everybody's scared to death to spend penny one of it because yeah. they don't want to get dinged on the back end for it. So Yeah, it's unfortunate. Timely. I started with the public defender's office in August, um, obviously before all this unrolled. So I stopped paying close, close attention to all the developments in employment law, um, which is just, you know, ironic in a weird way. Um, so I can't really offer much in terms of advice in terms of how, how the, uh, the, the pandemic is going to impact all of that. But I, you know, you see it and I, you know, on Facebook, I'm watching friends of mine who are still in the, you know, in the field, uh, not only talking about the PPP loans, but, you know, uh, the unemployment system and how awful that's been, you know, dealing with people and, and their claims, you know, and it's just going to be, it's going to be another kind of mess to dig our way out of. Um, but it's, it, we're going to figure out a new normal at some point. In time. Right. So uh, after law school, what was your first job as a attorney? First job out of law school was with White and Case in Miami. Uh, now, so you said Miami, how, how did you get down to Miami? What, what? My wife and I got engaged on Valentine's Day in 1992, and we were traveling back from uh, her school to my school along I-91, and there was a blizzard. We were driving in her Jeep Cherokee, and we did a 180 on the interstate. Looked at each other and said, as far south as we get in without leaving the country, that's where we're going to grad school. So... Uh, Miami was it, and uh, thankfully I had a, a full ride, so it made the financial you know issue a lot easier as well. Uh, I think maybe in some ways we violated our own rules because going to Miami is kind of like leaving the country. Yeah, very much so. Um, yeah, but it was a, it was a fantastic experience. And uh, so, how long did you work for for that firm? Unfortunately, only about nine months because my last well. My first year as an associate was my wife's fourth year in medical school. So she was due for a rotation right. or something so, like that? Well, she had to leave for residency, and unfortunately, her um, chosen specialty was ER. There wasn't an ER residency in the Miami area, so uh, she went to the University of Florida's program up in Jacksonville, and she had to do her transition year, which is like an internship, uh, and she did that at the Mayo Clinic up in Jacksonville. So. Were Basically, you guys traveling, or did you move to Jacksonville? No, we moved to Jacksonville okay. for four years. So that, that first job, though, in Miami, what type of law were you practicing? So my very first year, uh, first case out of the box was a federal intellectual property uh, litigation case. Uh, it was a really interesting uh, technology. Our client serviced high-powered uh, electrical uh, lines via helicopter. And he had a patent for a sled that sat on the skids of the helicopter, and they would basically bond on live lines. And his competitor had 
kind of a rope that hung from the bottom of the helicopter, and the, these two were fighting you know, over fighting over who got market share of <laughs> whoever wanted that. It's a it was a pretty big industry, I guess, at the time, and uh, so for about six months, that was almost the only case I worked on. Well, those, that's a, those are the type of cases yeah. you can't do a lot of. You got to do like. I mean, we had, you know, back then it was 100,000 documents was a huge case. We had a conference room dedicated strictly to discovery. And myself, another associate, two paralegals spent the better part of probably, you know, 15 hours a day just combing through documents and preparing for depositions. What year was this, approximately? This was 95. So we're not even in into laptops or yet, just barely. They were, you know, they, they were kind of like transformers. They weren't like the, the yeah. laptops of today. We did have Westlaw, but it was like the, the firm told you, don't use the Westlaw unless the Westlaw rep is here when we get free time. Yeah, yeah. it's too expensive. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. it's still too expensive, but... Yeah. Yeah, 100%. So then after that, you went up to Jacksonville, and what were right. you doing up in Jacksonville? I worked for a boutique labor and employment law firm. That's where I, well, I actually, one of the cases I worked on at White and Case was a employment discrimination case uh, for a client, and that got me sort of uh, a taste of employment law. So when I was applying for jobs up in uh, Jacksonville, I found a, a great firm, small firm, labor employment boutique, and basically did that for two years doing mostly discrimination work, um, some ADA stuff, but it was interesting. Now, in my uh, brief experience with labor and employment, it seems like there's a pretty uh, big dividing line between employer side and employee side that usually one place isn't doing both sides of it. Is that true? Uh, in my experience, no and yes, depends on where you are. That that firm did both Okay. because um, I know we represented um, some plaintiffs, but we also represented uh, defendants. Uh, when I was out on my own, I represented you know, whoever, whatever clients you know, sure, I, could, yeah. I could find. Uh, but ultimately, I think you tend to gravitate one way or the other. Right. Um, so when I worked for a small firm in Clearwater for 13 years, it was primarily defense side. Right. Okay. Okay. So you did that for, would you say, four years in Jacksonville? Well, two years at the labor and employment boutique firm. Okay. And then I actually went to an insurance defense firm and did primarily uh, medical malpractice defense right. and uh, dissolution of marriage work. Oh, uh, wow. Odd mix. <laughs> yeah. I had a, there was a senior partner there who had always done divorce law. I had always, I had actually, uh, going back to law school days, uh, when I was a clerk my first year summer, I worked for Jenner and Block. Mm -hmm. And they had the retrial of a big divorce case out of Naples. Uh, it had come down from the second, and they had to retry it. So this, my first year summer, I did a lot of clerking work on that case, and my, I think the first semester of my second year, I actually got to go over to Naples and help them with the trial. Okay. So that got me my first taste of family law. So when I went up to Jacksonville and I was looking for another uh, another job, um, this firm doing MedMal and family law was just an, a really interesting mix. My wife was a physician. The thought of being able to kind of work with her on MedMal cases, she was my built-in expert. It right. Was, it was awesome. I'd bring home a stack of records, and she would translate it for me, and I'd walk in, and I'd look like, you know, a genius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I have my uh, a buddy of mine, Armando Edmondson. He does uh, some of that. He does a lot of nursing home stuff, but his father is a is a physician and a doctor, and he's like, yeah, I, you know, I get to hang out with my dad a lot. He looks at my files, and I get to, you yeah. know, get a free expert to look at things. I and, tell you, it helps a lot. Yeah. So um, many trials with the insurance defense stuff? No. Um, I mean, I think I uh, my senior – I say my senior partner had one, but it was a uh, sort of a optics were such that I was basically sitting in the gallery instead right. of the council table. Right. Uh, so I wouldn't call that one of my trials. Um, 
And we just, I was only there for about a year and a half, two years before we moved back here to Tampa Bay area. Uh, so, you know, again, it's, it's in the civil world, unlike the, the criminal practice, the expense really plays into whether or not you can go to trial. Oh, or not. for sure. And it's cost prohibitive and right. good, good cases don't go to trial. Exactly. So exactly. Good yeah. Lawyers know how to figure out a way to resolve cases. And so for, you know, 24 years before I started in criminal practice, you know, most of my cases would settle whether out of need or because it was the right, you know, the right, right. solution. Um, but ultimately you found a way to make it work. And, you know, I had, I think I had a couple of jury trials in civil practice you know, and a bunch of bench trials. And then obviously in family law, you have, you know, bench trials all the time. Yeah. But, you know, it's not the same. So then when did you start doing more crime? August. August, I, that I, was it. August of, of this past year. So you got, what, about five months, four months of the old world before it, you know, Let's turned see. a corner? I started in August, and we basically went on kind of hiatus status sometime in, you know, March, April. And during that seven, eight months, I got eight jury trials in. So, you know, it was a great experience, a lot of fun. Which division um, were you in? I was in Division A, which or I think is it Division A, courtroom A. Is uh, Judge Roberts up in Pasco? Oh, okay, all right, okay. It's not really an A. It's a, I think it was seventeen or eighteen. Yeah, they have weird. Yeah. Well, they're, to me, they're weird because I started in Pinellas, but <laughs> right. I guess to you, they're that's the way it works. So, um, now this is not your first time running uh, for the circuit bench. Is that correct? That's correct. I ran in eighteen. 2018, and uh, that was that. Uh, who's was that to fill a bench that was being vacated by a senior judge, or yeah, that was Judge Day's seat, and now this one we're running for Judge uh, St. Arnold's Arnold. seat. Yeah, and it's uh, Eva Burgos is the opponent, correct? That's correct. Okay, and she's been on the show. I, kn- I know we talked briefly about her uh, in the beginning. St. Arnold. Uh, now I, I have a few cases in front of him right now, uh, and I've I had him on his last rotation in family and. You know, I constantly, I started my career in Pinellas County. I was a prosecutor over there under Bernie. And then when I left there, I started up my own practice out there on 66th Street and Central Avenue. And so I did that for a couple of years, but then came over here. So I'm kind of an attorney without a home. You know, Pinellas people think I'm a Tampa guy and Tampa guy think I'm a Pinellas guy. But I'm always comparing the bench and the state attorney's offices in both counties. And uh, it used to be the case that, Pinellas seemed to be the antiquated bench. A lot of the people that had been on the bench forever and ever and ever, but now there's a lot of new and younger blood coming in. Very young, yeah. Um, you mentioned Rebecca Hamilton, Fred Pollock, uh, Chris Labruzzo, Deneen Lore, Susan St. John. I mean, they were all prosecutors after I left the state attorney's office, right. you know, and I just, it always amazes me because I can barely get my shoes on. And to think that my contemporaries are, you know, making these life life changing decisions sure kind of blows my mind but um so this would be now you don't know though that you're going into family law right they don't tell you that right off the bat do they um i don't have it confirmed but it's yeah, i mean it, honestly almost every new judge in our circuit starts at family law so i was talking to and i don't remember which judge it was or which judge which candidate it was i think it was greg green who's running over here and i think he was telling me that the, at least the philosophy here in hillsborough county is New judges, they want to start out where they're not having to handle juries right away because juries are an additional kind of consideration, and it's a little bit easier with the bench not bringing a jury in right off the bat. I don't know if that's true or not, but... I, I'm not sure if it's that or if it's that those are the openings that tend to you know exist when you look at judges' seniority and what their selections are. I mean, so many of our judges come out of the state attorney's office, uh, 
And as a result of that, I think they want to get back to what they're comfortable with, which is crime and jury trials. Right. Uh, so, so when the opportunity is presented itself, they leave. Who does that leave to fill the other spots? Um, there are probably not a lot of people who run for judge going, I want to be on probate. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it's happened from time to time, but, sure. but I think most people you know, have a different perspective. Me, uh, you know, if I have my druthers, it's, it's circuit civil uh, because you know, I would like background. to do— Yeah, I, I mean, I think it would be really fun to do complex you know, civil litigation trials, and ultimately that's where you know, my head is at. Right. Family law doesn't, doesn't concern me. I mean, in the sense well, at least that you've I, done I, it. Exactly. Cause... I've got experience in it, so you know, on day one I'm not going to be you know, completely green going, what's that mean? And I don't have a bright line rule or a bright line philosophy on that. You know, I always tell the example I give is it used to drive me nuts when people would say to us, wait, just wait till you have kids about whatever the thing was. And I was like, I'm not stupid. I know, I know having kids is tough. I know you don't sleep. I know all this other stuff. And then we had kids. I was like, oh, I, I didn't know what I was getting into. You know, I, you know, as much as I thought I knew, I didn't. And to some degree, it's, I think, the same with family law. That said, there's a lot of really good judges who came in and didn't have any family law background. But sure. I don't think it hurts at all. I think it definitely helps. Oh, absolutely. And, I, you know, I think anybody running for judge ought to have a certain amount of life experience before they're sitting in judgment over, you know, the major issues that are confronting, you know, regular citizens. So, yeah. Uh, you know, whether it's because whether it's that you have a family or that you'd be of a sufficient age so that you've had, you know, enough life experience to, to you know, to be able to sit in that in that seat. Uh, it's important, but I don't think it's a, a mandatory. I mean, if you haven't had kids, so be it. Uh, I think you can still exercise sound judgment. I've got kids. I've raised, you know, two. Uh, I've got a 23 and a 21 year old. My 23 is in medical school. Wow. My 21 just transferred to USF for her junior year. So uh, she's back local, which is nice. Um, you know, but it's uh, it's it's definitely taught me a lot. Yeah, yeah. Continues to teach me a lot on a daily basis. Now, this being your second go around, you know, it, it, I started doing these interviews before all this hit. So my question was: Is this your first time doing it? Your second time doing it? How would you compare the two? But this time is different for everybody, whether they have or they haven't done it before, because you can't go anywhere. You can't. Right. I mean, so it's night and day. Yeah. How have you been able to adapt your campaign in, in light of the, the, the quarantine closures, that sort of thing? You take the opportunities that present themselves. I mean, you, you know, you do Zoom meetings instead of, you know, in life, in, you know, real in real life, uh, you know, campaign events. But it's 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 hard and uh, it's different. But that's why, you know, for example, you know, why I reach out to you to say, hey, you've got a podcast, you know, can I come on the air? And um, you know, you just, you take whatever opportunity presents itself. Right, right. But COVID is COVID, so. Well, and that's the, in a, in a kind of a morose and maybe selfish way that I've been able to comfort myself is, is if I'm knowing everybody else is having a hard time, it's not quite so woe is me. It's like, okay, well, it's tough for everybody. So, right. you know, if I was being singled out and I was the only one who had to wear a mask and sit at home, then I would be more upset than I am. But it's certainly a level level playing field. That's that's exactly right. So um, so in in talking with the the prior candidates who are running, you know, some of the things that I've gone through them is you know kind of their experience with the bench, what they think is important for a new judge, what they've seen that they didn't like, and so that they don't have to break the seal. I usually kind of give some examples of what what my thoughts are on it, and I'll ask you your opinion. Um, I've had the opportunity. I started practicing in 2002, so I'm right at about 18 years. Uh, I was a prosecutor for three years in Pinellas County, so I got to do a bunch of criminal there. And as soon as I came out, I started doing family law. I've done some construction stuff. We do personal injury. So I've, I've had a breadth of experience 
different types of courtrooms, different types of procedures, different types of judges. But uh, I definitely have a type of judge that I like. And for me, the biggest thing is always temperament. Over and above knowledge of the law, over and above work ethic, over and above whatever else may be, I just think that it is one of the most stressful enterprises that most people will be involved in, whether it's criminal, family, civil, whatever else. And you as kind of the manager of how that experience is going to go, have your foot on the gas and can make it better or worse significantly just based on your personality. And so some of these people that I see that are on the bench, you know, the question immediately comes up, why did you, why why did you want to be a judge? If being a judge is annoying you so much and so frustrating to you, you don't have to do it. No one's twisting your arm. You know, sure. I've always kind of felt that there's a, I think it was Groucho Marx or whoever said, I don't ever want to be a member of a club that would have me as a member. Right. I've kind of felt that way about judges. I, I say that just, but, you know, I don't want many people who want to be a judge to be a judge, but that's really what I'm saying is if you want to be a judge for the right reason. So my question to you, long way around, is what do you think are the right reasons to want to be a judge versus the wrong reasons, and, and how, how, how do you view yourself through that lens? Sure. I think the right reason is because you are committed to uh, public service and you feel that you are suited to the role. Uh, and, and by that, I don't just mean that you, you know, want to wear the robe, but that you, you know, have thought seriously about the implications and the responsibility that go along with that job. Uh, you know, for me, temperament's all about civility, humility, uh, integrity, respect, patience, and hopefully intelligence that yeah. we kind of expect from the person in that position. Right. Um, and, you know, I, there's a reason I start with humility. Uh, I've been through the JNC process, you know, a number of times, been recommended to the governor a number of times. I've run. This is now my second time. Uh, it's a humbling process. Uh, but aside from that, you have to recognize that you're taking that position, and you have an immediate impact on the lives of everyone who comes before you. And that's not just the litigants themselves, it's the lawyers as well. And you have to respect them and understand that they're, you know, there are lawyers there who are, who are running their own businesses. There are lawyers there who you know, may not be pay, taking a paycheck because uh, you know, they got to make sure their staff gets paid. Um, you know, they got personal issues just like you have personal issues. And so you know, it's not all about you, and you've got to be able to listen to hear, not listen just for the opportunity to speak, which is what most litigators do. Right. If you think about it, we're always listening for, all right, where's my response? As a judge, you're listening to make a decision, not to have your say, you know, in response. Right. And that's a different, that's a different angle. Uh, so anyway, uh, for me, the judiciary is like this perfect marriage of the academic side of my brain with my commitment to service. Well, and another thing that you brought up, and this is becoming more apparent to me as I get uh, older and more overweight, is the importance of self-care and uh, doing things outside of your office, outside of uh, being the bench that can, how important those things are to your role on the bench, you know? And, you know, I've seen certain judges who, you know, if you practice long enough in Pinellas County, you get to know some of the dark and dirty secrets about some of the judges who's going through a divorce, who's going through this, these other things that happen. Sure. And you can see the impact that their lives outside of the courtroom have on their 
temperament and their abilities on the bench. So I sure. really think that that's a big part of it that's kind of overlooked. Um, one of the people that I spoke with during one of these podcasts, I had asked them, and I was going to ask you too, have you gone around and spoken to some of the judges locally? Did you go talk to St. Arnold? Did you talk to some of these people? I, yeah, and... I think it's a it's a it, out of respect. You you certainly want to talk to the judge whose seat you're running for. So like I'd asking for the dad for your want your daughter's hand in marriage. <laughs> kind of sort of yeah. yeah. So I definitely had sit downs with Judge Day and and in the last go round, and I, I had a sit down with uh, with Judge St. Arnold. And I've spoken to many of the judges over the course of the the, the you know few years, both through the JNC process again and the elections process. I can't even count how many of the judges in our circuit I've I've had an opportunity to talk to. And I'll tell you one thing: you learn. Uh, going through this process, when you put yourself out there as a candidate, they are an unbelievably welcoming and generous group as it, a whole with their time and their advice. Yeah, uh, it's phenomenal. Well, both sides of the bridge, I, I can I can give names of a few people that I just have immense amount of respect for. Um, you know, I'm friends with uh, Judge Labruzzo and all that, but uh, Judge Pollock over there is just a walking family law encyclopedia. So, and so uh, full disclosure, Judge Pollock happens to be my brother-in-law. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. So uh, I, my Westlaw subscription and, and additional costs skyrocketed when he became judge because I didn't have him to ask, you know, child support enforcement questions, and now it's... Uh, Poor Mark Baseman and Lawrence Hodds and Damian McKinney that I'm constantly like, you know, who gets the Social Security benefit on that guy? You know, but he's but the one thing, though, is, man, his pretrial memorandum requirements are <laughs> next level. I was just having this conversation. I mean, it used to be, you know, get your trial books to each other 48 hours before. Now it's like you're pre you almost having to have a mock trial before you have your actual trial. So definitely involved. But I love I love Fred. He's a, he's a great judge. But um. Uh, so, but the point I was getting at was um, one of the big things that I heard a lot of the judges report to people who were running was how isolated the office can make them feel. Sure. Where you come from a situation where e either, you know, when you're a solo guy, you're going out to lunch with all your friends or you're seeing them in traffic court or you're seeing them wherever and you get to talk whatever, you know, uh, if you're in a big firm, you can just walk down the hallway and talk to your colleagues, partners, whatever. But as a judge... There's there's almost this expectation that you can't talk to anyone, you know, and so you're kind of removed from the world and treated a little bit differently. Is that something you've contemplated, thought about at all? Or? Yeah, I don't think I've I don't think I'm overly concerned with it. I've been a solo. Um, I've been an in-house counsel on two different respect, uh, two different occasions, uh, which are fairly small legal departments. So I, I'm used to kind of doing my work in isolation. Uh, mm -hmm. I think. Criminal practice is definitely a more social practice because, I mean, when you're kind of, you know, in the pit with all the other lawyers, you know, you've got that camaraderie right. uh, almost on a daily basis. Uh, I don't think you see that quite as often on civil uh, because... Family law is a lot more you're pitted against each other, Yeah, you know, because the defense attorneys aren't really hanging out with the prosecutors too right. much. So they all just get to, t you know, talk shop. But with family law, it's definitely... You know, we're 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 biting at each other constantly. Sure. So. I mean, so you have bar functions and things like that to socialize, but you have that as a judge as well. Right. Uh -huh. Right. 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 So, um, a couple a couple things I wanted to ask you about. Uh, this is your second time around. The first time you said you ran against uh, Rebecca Hamilton. This time, uh, uh, Eva Virgos, who is a prosecutor over in Pasco, right, Newport right. Ritchie. Um, so, uh, have you and Sheets spoken at all? Do you guys get to see each other at events or? In the beginning, yeah. uh, we saw each other at a couple of events. It was, uh, 
we're you know we're collegial. Yeah, uh, we get along just fine. And uh, in fact, it was funny. We were at a, uh, a Black Law Students Association meeting at uh, at Stetson, and they were doing a game night. And the I want to call them kids, but I, I mean the, the law students put us against each other in a game of taboo, which right. was just it was kind of fun. Yeah. So a little competitive juices going, but it sure. was, we had a good time. Um, so a couple of the other things that I brought up with some of the other people that were running. Uh, one was one of the things that I see a lot of times with a new judge on the bench is they decide that they are going to be the new sheriff in town and implement all these new policies. And uh, that that works for about three to six months before the the waves crash. <laughs> they kind of fall back in line with what the normal procedures are. Have you thought about kind of what co- kind of court you want to run what you're going to do, how it might be the same, how it might be different. What's what's your thinking there? Um, I'm absolutely not going to make any decisions about what works and doesn't work until I'm actually in the role. Right. Um, I can tell you that my my single priority is essentially to have respect for every single person I come into contact with. Right. Uh, whether that be you know a criminal defendant you know, or a you know a new lawyer or a lawyer who's been you know out there for you know 50 years, it doesn't matter. Uh, Everybody deserves respect, and if I start with that rule in my courtroom, I feel like I can't go wrong. It's tough, and I don't know what the answer is. You see, I see it a lot in criminal court where there's this kind of back and forth between cases sitting forever, and then then there'll be two pretrials and we're setting it for trial, but then you can't get a trial date for two years, or all the trial dates are you know triple stacked, and people are prepping and then continuing, so... It's definitely a hard balance to strike oh, no uh, when you're doing a lot of trials. So, yeah. And then same with family law, you know. It, family even worse, I think. I mean, in, in you know, in in crime, I think because you've got you know the two biggest law firms in Pinellas County essentially pushing those cases along one way or the other, um, and you've got the case management that goes along with it, and it's all supported. In family law, and you know, to a degree, I think in personal injury, this probably also applies. It's a lot up to the attorneys to get involved and push their cases. I don't think the judges take an active role in case management. Right. So a case, you know, I've had cases in my civil practice that lasted for over five years. Yeah. And you think about that and you go, is there anything about that case that was that sophisticated that required five years to do discovery and get prepared to get to the point of, you know, either going to trial or going to mediation and settling? No. Right. Um, Right. So I, I certainly keep an eye out for that sort of thing and try and be a little bit more of an active case manager if I'm on the civil side. Um, but again, you got to see where the resources are and, and what the limitations are. Well, the one thing that's interesting about you is although you've been a public defender just since August, I, I don't know that anybody would really look at you as defense-oriented or state-oriented like they would a, a career prosecutor no, and, or and, a career public defender. And that's been something... If I've done one thing right in my career in preparation for the bench, it's I've represented both sides of just about every area of practice I've been involved with. Right, right. So impartiality, neutrality, you know, that's why the mediator certifications matter too. It's that's that's where I'm, you know, that's 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 my wheelhouse is, is neutrality. So one thing that I'm going to ask, and I'm going to be careful how I ask it because uh, I'm not asking you a, a political affiliation question. Sure. Obviously, the 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 the, nom- the the campaign process, I guess you could call it a political. You know, it's not. We don't talk about those things. But I've always wondered, uh, as I'm talking to the various people running for the bench, what view they feel politics in general, their politics may have, and their ability to execute the job. So. Not asking you your affiliation, but the two examples that I always come up with are this. The, the most easiest one is death penalty cases. If 
if you're doing criminal because obviously your 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 personal beliefs your political beliefs will play a, a big part in that and then the other one that i see a lot and this is one that's come up with me uh multiple times in family law is you know under chapter 6113 the considerations when uh, when a court is determining what to do with uh, the child or children who to place them with one is talks about the moral fitness of the parent and you know if i have a very christian fundamental judge you know in, in courtroom A and, you know, a, a former, you know, protester, hippie, whatever, in, in, in courtroom B, you know, dad smoking marijuana may be of much more importance in courtroom A than it, it does in courtroom B. Sure. And, not only, and, and it's funny, even on that issue, is I've heard judges say, uh, I had a case with Judge Tibbles over here in Hillsborough County, and, he, and there was an issue of someone smoking marijuana, and he said, are you guys smoking during the marriage? Because if you were, I'm not going to get really out of sorts about someone doing it now. This is something that's happened after the fact, and you can show that it's impacting the best interests of the child. Right. But it's not going to be this dirty word that you press the button, and all of a sudden that means someone's losing their time. So, right. Not a gotcha game. That was a, a compound and confusing question. I'm sorry. but No, no, uh, no. I, you know, and I think you know, taking the last part first, sort of uh, morality you know, it's a bigger, uh, much broader subject, obviously. It's funny, it's sort of what the, the focus of my, you know, philosophy uh, major was uh, on moral philosophy. But um, like you said, you have to look at the 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 parties where you find them, mm-hmm. not put them on a kind of, you know, societal spectrum and say, you know, are these folks moral according to the highest standards of society? It's, you know, let's look at them in where we find them. Right. And again, you know, if if they're engaging in those kinds of behaviors uh, in their home, then it's not a it's not a game of gotcha. You know, I'm going to go tell the judge what you you know what you've been doing all along. No, if that's the way you run your family, then that's the way you run your family, and you made that decision. Now, does that have to do with your divorce? Does that have to, you know, you got to take into account a whole lot of of of, of information and make the right decision, um, and that's hard to do, um, but that's the job. Right. Uh, but it's not about. I don't think it's about your personal feelings. It's about, you know, and getting back to the first part of the question, you know, things like death penalty, whatnot, it's you're applying the law to the facts as they're brought before you. That's your job. Right. You're, if you're not capable of setting aside your biases and prejudices in order to decide the case fairly, you don't belong on the bench. Well, there definitely seems to be a value in compartmentalization and sure. setting boundaries. And that, uh, you know, something that I have... Uh, really kind of been interested in both professionally and personally is the concept of emotional intelligence. We have people who are very learned. They go and get all these, you know, just in my family law, I have these neurosurgeons or the whatever heads of heads of corporations just have reached the pinnacle of achievement professionally and are some of the most emotionally insecure, yeah. ignorant people in the world. And it just, it, it blows my mind. What a, balance how far the balance can be off one is not necessarily at all an indicator of the other so again getting back to temperament and some of these other things being able to separate your private life from your role on the bench being able to separate your personal beliefs from your job on the bench and you said it earlier being able to listen to not respond but to really kind of absorb and you know, use what's being given to you to make a decision applying the law to the to the facts is sure. such an important thing. But what, it's hard, and uh, you know, where, wherever you fall on the spectrum as an attorney, whether you're a great one, not a great one, or whatever, the opportunity is always there for shortcut. 
just you know yeah that form looks good i'll sign off on it and you, you know and you know there's caseloads timelines sure. all these things and so i think over time you know and i don't know if it's you know some more turnover on the bench if there's term limits or if it's moving moving them around more frequently but i just think one of the other parts aside from term uh, temperament is uh just becoming stale in certain parts and how do you how do you keep fresh how do you not let it get to you how do you i mean i think you could you could fairly criticize the fact that we don't rotate judges you know and that they get established in a particular division and you know and there are pluses and minuses to that obviously from an efficiency standpoint once they know the job and can do the job bringing uh, someone else in and having to teach it to them yeah you're upsetting the apple cart you're having to start all over um but but at the same time, you know, it's probably not the worst thing in the world to require them to have different perspectives, uh, whether it's rotating just to different divisions. You know, for nine months to be in front of one judge and have one team of state attorneys and one team of public defenders, I think that's okay. You know, you learn each other's ins and outs, whatnot. At a certain point, I think that gets stale. I'm not sure where that happens. Um, but I think it makes sense to, you know, to, to sort of move people around. And I don't, even, I, I, I don't even know that you're saying this, but it's occurring to me as you're saying it. I think it, it, it maybe is practice area specific. Sure. Because in divorce, you can't be rotating judges every nine months because you're going to have three different judges throughout the case right. of a divorce. Right. Whereas but a, a misdemeanor case is going to be yeah, you know, started and couple, ended yeah, well within weeks, that Six weeks, eight weeks, right. right. So, but that's interesting. Well, um, I appreciate you coming in. Where can people find you online? Where can people find you? Framingforjudge.com. I think it's Committee to Elect Evan Freeman on Facebook. Um, you know, pretty much just look up Evan Freeman on a Google search and you're probably going to find my campaign. And so Election Day is when? August 18th. All right. And uh, you can do in person still, right? They haven't changed. Uh, as far as I know, but I think we're encouraging everybody to get their mail-in ballots ready. And those are supposed to go out, I think, mid-July. So we're coming. July. I mean, we're, we're almost six weeks away. That seems like that would be a big a big date you want to get in everybody's head to keep an eye out for those things. Absolutely. Um, if you're like me, it's always the 11th hour deciding whether you're going to fill it out or just go down to the county center. Yeah, and it might not be in early just because I'll probably be campaigning on day of. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming by. It was a pleasure finally meeting you in person. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for your campaign. Uh, obviously, you have the uh, depth and breadth of experience to uh, do a great job, and uh, I wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much. All right. Take care.